1: But in the backyard across from the house that my grandfather owned, there was always a garden in the backyards. Everyone in our neighborhood had fruit trees. I remember my neighbors, like, yelling out because I would cut through their backyard to go to my cousin's house, like, just trampling my, my food.
0: This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Nicole A. Taylor is a food writer, recipe developer, and master home cook. Her latest book is Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth and black celebrations. Now, I've known Nicole for a while, but this conversation was the first time we were able to sit down and talk about food in her native Georgia, her work as a writer and editor in New York City, and the meaning of Juneteenth. I had such a good time catching up with Nicole, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Nicole Taylor, welcome to This Is Taste.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Long time coming. We've been I talking know, about right? it.
1: You made it happen.
0: It's happening. Thank you, Anna Heasel, for the reintroduction, for the reminder. I
1: You're- know, because we were on a panel together back in the fall. Yeah. Brooklyn, Brooklyn Book Festival, and yeah. it was like raining cats and dogs. Remember yeah. that?
0: Yeah, it was, it was. it was not a great day, but it was a great panel, and it's on YouTube, actually.
1: I know. I need to go back and gotta watch it. I got to
0: check that. I'll link to it. Now, um, you're up at BA right now. That's why you and Anna were talking. And you're you're in the test kitchen. you have been working on a dish for the November issue. And, like, let's go behind the scenes. <laughs> food media is—magazine media is no joke.
1: Yeah. I mean, crazily, can you believe this is my first time working in big media? I think some people know I worked uh, as an executive food editor at Thrillist for, that, a hot, for a hot minute. But— Yeah, I am filling in for—or I've been filling in for the past three months for one of my colleagues that's on book leave. Uh, The the behind-the-scenes, I don't know. You know, I have nothing to compare my experience (laughs) to, except for I went into this role knowing that um, this is kind of junior-ish, but I saw it as an opportunity for me to get in the door and really see how, you know, the the, the sausage is made— And to sharpen my skills, like recipe testing, editing, developing, what better place than to be in uh, BA Test Kitchen?
0: Yeah, I mean a beautiful test kitchen, and you're working on this this recipe. And you, let's go through how many iterations have you been through? Oh my course.
1: gosh, I am working on a pie. I'm going to yeah. just say that. Yeah. For uh, the print issue, it's actually someone else's recipe. Ha. Huh. Can we really call it a recipe what they sent? <laughs> yeah. Someone else's ingredients right. that they sent Someone over. else's
0: list of things and, exactly. and without any real directions.
1: So before I uh, hopped on the train and came uptown, I was working on the third test. Yeah, And actually, I'm going to do it one more time because I forgot to add an extra egg. Um, my editor, Hannah, was like, "Uh, let's add an extra egg. And then I had to call a friend this morning about getting— um, the ingredients Mm. inside of the pie super smooth. And I wanted to talk about some, some techniques.
0: Trying to get it smooth. I love that caginess because we don't want to spoil a great show. (laughs) uh, When is it due? Like when you think about a November issue, you know, major American holiday around that time, when do you have to actually close the pages
1: so, I mean, I've been there three months and I feel like I've been habitually behind on every single thing. I'm sure behind the scenes they're like, oh, we will never hire this girl for anything no. because she's always late. Dude, uh, it's Dude act- every
0: magazine job I've had, I felt every page Ugh. late by like three months. Just FYI. It's crazy. <laughs>
1: uh, the recipe is supposed to go to cross testing uh, this week. Mm-hmm. So we're at like three days before I need to have it in hand to be edited and head notes, looked at my head notes, which are completely different from what people will see in the print magazine. They'll see a version um, online where I've, you know, taken my head notes and uh, the person's, um, article and kind of, you know, made a story from that. But yeah, it's, it's intense. It can be very intense, but, um, I'm made for this. I know.
0: Yeah. And respect it because, you know, when you open up a magazine that you get at the, you know, the airport, you look at those recipes, you know, there's been a lot of work that went into those.
1: Totally. Totally. I mean, you know, I've been lucky. I feel like I got a, got my schooling, um, freelancing for the New York Times food mm-hmm. section I did over the last, since 2017, have written for them, you know, mm-hmm. big stories around sweet potato, yeah. Juneteenth, um, watermelon, and always I would have at least one recipe, sometimes three. So that process for sure um, helped me be in the test kitchen, which can be, you know, a different beast. Oh, my You're gosh. talking about um, a magazine, and you're also in a physical space. You know, New York Times is just now getting a test kitchen. Um, so when I was freelancing for them a lot, it was, you know, at home, going back and forth with your editor and the tester. So it's, a bit You're different. a really
0: unique journalist in that you are doing deeply reported stories in the field and, and interviewing chefs and doing these long features, but then you're also in the test kitchen, that's hard as hell. Like, that's hard to do all that.
1: It is. It is. I mean, I think about the piece that I wrote for Juneteenth for um, Bon Appetit Digital. And I did an essay, a thousand-word yeah. essay, which I thought was really great, very personal. It wasn't sure. hi cook this. It's Juneteenth. LOL. Yeah, no. LOL, was, cook this. <laughs> no, it was not that. It was for sure a very thought-out, personal essay that a lot of people read and were like, ooh, um, this is good. Mm-hmm. I like your writing. You're a real writer. <laughs> I always laugh. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> uh on top of I have four recipes I had to develop yeah. and I had to get them right and I had to go through, you know, several iterations, cross testers, yeah, editing, editing, editing. Um, but I like to say no one outworks me.
0: No, it's beautiful. And Nicole, you mentioned you were an editor at Thrillist. Let's go back. Where did your journalism career start? I'd like to hear about that.
1: Hot journalism career. Are we calling it that? I mean, like,
0: <laughs> you when you write for The Times and it isn't just like a caption, which, you know, Some I've written very few things and it feels like a caption. If you're writing many features, that's, yes, you are a journalist. That place is hard.
1: Um, I would say I'm self-taught for sure. Yeah. I mean, I grew up being a reader, an avid reader. I was a kid who read the newspaper mm-hmm. before I was a teenager every single day. So I would tell my aunts and my mom, "Here's the news for our small hometown." Um, I also read a ton of books, and then recently I was at home going through old boxes, and I found like stacks and stacks of journals where I'm writing poetry. And I'm like, okay, so I always was a writer, yeah. huh? Yeah. Um, but I got into food. Because a friend told me, she was like, you don't need to go get a master's in historic preservation from Pratt. You're really obsessed with food. So I started, like, 2009, really teaching myself, buying Diane Jacobs, um, will for food. Yeah. You know, spending all of my money on going to restaurants here in New York City. Uh, so I'd like to say, like... I taught myself. I went to online courses. I didn't have any, or I don't have any formal training in journalism. Uh, I have a degree in community health education, and you know, work for nonprofits. I never ever thought that I would be a cookbook author, mm-hmm. a food writer. Never on my bucket list. On my, what did I say, bingo cards. <laughs> <laughs> bingo
0: card for your career. And 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 I have to, you know, ask, like, what was that initial pitching like? And was there a place that, you know, you started writing for mm. and that started publishing you?
1: No. So what happened is I had a show on Heritage Radio Network. Yeah. I was the, like, first crop. Yeah. Kathy Irway and I started oh, yeah. on the same exact day. Um Wow. Yeah, we what? started on the same. Era. Yeah, we started on the same exact day. Snacky tunes. Um, oh, Greg, the yeah. The Twins. Yeah, the Twins' presence. They had a podcast right before me. No, so I, I did, like, almost 200 shows on Heritage Radio Network. This is when you had to explain to people what's a podcast. Yeah. Um, and then people started saying, oh, do you want to write for us? And I'm like, oh, I'm not a writer. <laughs> I'm just, you know, talking to people and telling stories about Brooklyn Foods. Right?
0: <laughs> Were you working in community health as well during that yeah. time? Yeah. So you had a full-time job and this was, like, more on the side. I
1: had a—I I actually had two jobs. I did that yeah. show for five years. I worked for New New Yorkers for Parks for a brief moment. Um, and then I worked for Brooklyn Food Coalition. Oh, so, cool. yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've always kind of had this like community building NGO background um, in the background um, before I just really started making money and food and saying, okay, maybe this can be a career. So
0: you have the show. It, it was gone on for five years and it was, you know, 200 episodes is no joke because you were like going out to Bushwick. Yeah. Every show, you weren't doing remotes, I bet. You were just going out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. 160 something shows, actually, if I'm going to be correct. Yeah. Um, I paused because I got a book deal. My first book, uh, The Up South Cookbook, Chasing Dixie in a Brooklyn Kitchen. I was like, you know, I need to pause and really focus on this book deal. I didn't even have enough money really to be pausing. I wasn't even making money at Heritage, just keep it real. Yeah. But I just figured, like, the time was up and I would come back to podcasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a few little podcasts or audio stories on my own after that but mainly I just focused on the next
0: so you do the cookbook, and that, that's a big hit, and then you are starting to work in food media at the t- by the time that book comes out?
1: I don't know if it was a big hit. It came out in 2015. I think that it definitely was a calling card and a business card. Sure. That's I what they
0: say about books, right? Yeah, like I was— The most expensive calling card.
1: I still was craving to be at a major uh-huh. media company, and I remember applying for Savoir, you know, applying for, like, a very, like— assistant food editor job there and uh, Max Falkowitz, whom I love dearly, um, was trying to get me in the door and it didn't happen. Mm. It didn't happen at all. And I was like six interviews and I'm like, how could this not happen? I have an entire book. Yeah. And I was crushed. And that was a time when I definitely was one of the voices saying where are the black people in food media? Yep. Um But no one cared. I didn't get a, I still didn't get a job. <laughs>
0: So, Nicole, how do you regroup after that tough experience of not getting the job? Um, do you continue writing? Um, is that when the times started? You said 2017 is when you started at the Times, So you're starting to get clips of the times.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say, I mean, I should just clarify and say it wasn't a devastating moment. I think Good. that um, it was something that needed to happen to keep me, um, to keep me going, to make me stronger. Um, So one of the things that I've done since I've been in New York for 15 years is build relationships, real relationships Mm -hmm. with people and not transactional ones. And um, one of my friends, someone I consider a friend and not a colleague, um, put me in a position where I was in the same room with um, Sam Sifton. Mm. And uh, he was like... um, yeah, we should talk. Uh, but kind of before that, I had a memo going around um, to possibly write a column for them. Oh, cool. And um, we were in the same room. He was like, I saw your memo. I actually went up to him and said, hi, I'm Nicole Taylor. <laughs> he was like, I know who you are. And cool. it just kind of happened from there. He was like, you should freelance for us. And I remember pitching them stories. The first story I wrote actually was about... Black Martha's Vineyard Mm. and um, the food and the kind of magic of that. And I pitched something totally different. And Emily Weinstein was like, no, you need to write about this. This is your sweet spot. She's also the one, crazily, who suggested I write about Juneteenth.
0: Yeah. Um, Before the book deal or the book proposal. Yeah, this is
1: 2017. Yeah,
0: yeah, about this holiday that is now a national. It's a federal holiday now. We're going to get into the significance of it. Um, But, you know, respect to Emily for— you know, doing that and getting you in the pages, the Times.
1: Yeah, Emily and Sam, Sam Sifton for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people like to drag him, but he's a very, <laughs> I mean, yeah, a lot, you know, people like to chatter, but I I see him as being very generous. Like behind the scenes, I feel like um, he's one of the guys who kind of helped, my career at a very vital moment so yeah. I'm always appreciative of, of, th- of those two folks for no, sure. No I,
0: I, I like it and yeah I'm, I'm, I like Sam a lot I think we had a Slack channel with Sam-isms and Anna Hazel and I. Uh, <laughs>
1: Shout out cool.
0: to Anna that, that might have been a little clowning on him but I, I actually really like Sam's work and journalism I'm big
1: fan. I think there are some really cool people I mean Tejal Ra is someone I hugely respect she's a dear friend yeah. I love her work I love what she's always doing and it's good to see the evolution of that section. Yeah
0: so we're going to get to watermelon and redbirds, your your book that is uh, revolves around the food and the culture around Juneteenth. But let's go back to your upbringing. You're a fourth generation Athenian, Ha-ha. not the country of Greece, but <laughs> Athens, Georgia. I have to ask you. I think of REM. I think of UGA football. Ha-ha. Those are my two. Uh, That's what thoughts. you think of. But like, what? So tell me about. T- going what up. about
1: Titus Burgess? Did you know Dude, that he was? He's from Athens.
0: I. Oh my gosh, Titus Burgess! Like, yeah. what a what a gift. Yeah, he's like a what year a singer. What a voice. I
1: know he's like a year or two younger than me. He went to the other high school, but um, yeah, I think of REM as well. Um, yeah, I grew up basically following Michael Stipe to inside of the taco stand, which is like a <laughs> kind of like a college dive taco bar yeah um but i remember seeing him as a kid and i've always been obsessed with him i've never met him he had an art show in williamsburg like pre-pandemic and i went and checked that out but yes um
0: (laughs) major food fan too he is a major he's just like always out like not that i've like seen him i think i've seen him in photos but he's always at restaurants and
1: totally he's totally a food person Yeah, yeah yeah i mean here's the thing uh I hate UGA football. I am not. I, I, know, I know. No,
0: I, I. I'm a University of Wisconsin fan. I I'm not. A, I love the SEC though.
1: I shouldn't say that because they've like won two years in a row. They're like great national championship. Yeah, I grew up basically wanting to get so far away from UGA football, so mm-hmm. far away from the small town life. Um, but I always appreciate Athens for giving me the foundation of like loving small businesses, yeah. loving food, and understanding the power of um, of music and storytelling. So now, you know, being twenty plus years removed from living there, well, we'll talk about how I moved back because you moved yeah. back. We'll get to yeah. that.
0: You you have um, you split time, which is cool.
1: Yeah, I I I appreciate the city now. It's different. It's way different, but. Yeah. Athens is so much more than UGA and R E M. Yep. Like
0: I love it. That's was the point of my um cliche question because I, I love it because I've only been there a couple of times and oh. what was food like growing up then?
1: Food growing up in Athens was a lot of eating at home, but also um it was very aspirational because I remember my mom taking me to downtown Athens and taking me to the grill, which was like this diner. I remember going to Harry Bissett's, which was this New Orleans style white tablecloth restaurant in downtown Athens. Um, so I understood the power of like small local restaurants like UD's, mm. which was a sandwich shop. So I'm all, I feel like I'm always chasing that feeling in that era of like, finding um the little small gym tucked yeah. away in downtown Athens, which is completely different. It's now.
0: changed now because of the corporate nature of this oh town. Gosh. Because of the big business of football S- and all
1: Starbucks, Chick fil A. Yeah.
0: Oh <laughs> Chick fil A. Zaxby's sad. Um let's talk about the home kitchen growing up. Yeah. What was that like for you? Where, did you did you have um four you say fourth generation? Yeah. Local. So you're local per like yeah. what's that like?
1: So I grew up um and the east side on the east side of Athens which now is probably one of the last semi intact black neighborhoods um i actually live across the street from north oconee river and so it's a passive river or greenway trail that like connects mm-hmm. like a huge part of Athens people love it um i remember having my first birthday party there and we like real hot dogs and hamburgers yeah. um Now, you know, people are walking their dogs there, but in the backyard across from the house that my grandfather owned and left to my mom and my aunts, there was always a garden in the backyard. So we always had a backyard garden. Everyone in our neighborhood had fruit trees, Mm. plums, you know, um, um, there were black walnuts, crab apples. So I actually saw... Uh, the abundance of Southern yeah. food, like in everybody's yard. I remember my neighbors like yelling out because I would cut through their backyard to go to my cousin's house. Like, just trampling my my food.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so when when you talk about everyone has a backyard garden, everyone have backyard garden chores. Were you like
1: having to weed? Uh, no, I, I don't. Worry. I definitely didn't do all of that, you know, yeah. but. There was definitely, you know, weekends where you had to sit in the kitchen while someone, you know, uh, clean the collards and cut up the collard yeah. greens or shelled the beans. Oh, sounds um, so
0: delicious. Sounds amazing.
1: Yeah. So I was around. I didn't have the chores. Yeah. Because it definitely wasn't, they had passive backyard gardens. And by the mid 80s, mm-hmm. you start seeing those fade away in addition to like the outside clothes clotheslines yeah i feel like that's when like things started to really change so yeah
0: um speaking of like southern black foodways let's talk about georgia in particular is there a food that comes from georgia in the black community that maybe we don't know about like generally broadly speaking i just love to hear about just like love atlanta i go to atlanta as much as i can i don't know athens as well Uh, it's a beautiful state i love the state of georgia
1: yeah athens and atlanta they're so different very much so Different, but also when you look at the state of Georgia, people love to look at it. you. You have these very uh, blue, was that yeah, right? blue in Atlanta and Metro Atlanta. Then you have the state co- county for now, right?
0: Yeah, right. Seriously,
1: uh, and then you have Athens. You know, two very liberal or um, liberal-ish yeah. towns. Um, when I think about southern food and food from my south that people don't talk about enough, I'm talk, I'm think about peas and beans. Um people love talking about black-eyed peas and I'm like, walk, walk, walk. We did not have <laughs> black-eyed peas You're all right. the time. We had um purple whole peas." Yeah which were fresh, lima beans, like speckled lima beans. And I hated them growing up, but now, mm. oh, my gosh. When they're
0: fresh and they're off the pot and you can put some – how do you make them? What's, what's, the, what's the go-to?
1: Um, Smoked ham hock yeah. or, you know, smoked turkey neck. Mm-hmm. Um, put it in a pot, onion, bay leaf, little garlic. Nice. Make your own broth or – You know, you can buy some broth and good old pot of beans. You
0: got the pot liquor there. at Pot liquor. You can make
1: some hot water cornbread or lace cornbread, what some people would call it, or barefoot cornbread. Yeah, I think people don't really dig deep into the variety of peas and beans in the American South. And I grew up around a lot of them beyond black-eyed peas and pinto beans. No. Thanks,
0: Nicole. I appreciate that because I think it's hardly a monoculture, right? And you can't define the black food experience by one dish, you know, and— or one region one region right texas is much different gulf coast i mean that's you know houston is a very different city amazing city on its own but so you split time what does that mean
1: yeah um i cannot believe that i moved back to athens (laughs) at the height of the global pandemic yeah in the summer of 2020 bought a house sight unseen
0: wow I know, right? Wow. Whoa. That's a different show, but man. <laughs>
1: Sight unseen. Oof. I was like, oh, we'll be there like three months. Six months maybe. We'll renovate this, and this will be an investment property, and it'll be yeah. a creative space. We were there two and a half. Years. I
0: mean, if, I'm not sure if you took a mortgage, but low interest rates.
1: Oh, my advantage. gosh. It's crazy low.
0: Took advantage, yeah.
1: Of course I took a mortgage. Come on. I don't have a trust fund. I grew up <laughs> working class. <laughs> no. Well,
0: there you go. You got those low interest. So it's, you think an investment property, and you, you've stayed.
1: Yeah, we we stayed up until the fall of 2022. I have a now four-and-a-half-year-old son. And my husband and I made a decision that we wanted him to have, be educated and and have our community wrap their arms around him in, in New York. So we moved back to New York. I think a lot of people were really shocked, and they're like, you're really moving back here? Um, so, yeah, I've been back in New York full-time since the fall, and it's been... Interesting.
0: Yeah. What's it like raising a four-year-old in New York?
1: I have a babysitter twice a week that stays until 8.30, Mm -hmm. so that's my time to kick it with friends, go to restaurants, go to bars. Yeah. So my schedule is- Balance. Yeah. My schedule is very tight. I have to, you know, five o'clock, a lot of five o'clock dinners.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, that's the best time. It's a golden hour for restaurants. I
1: I know. Everyone's figured that out, though.
0: Let's talk restaurants. What's good right now? Where are you going? Ooh. You're out. I mean, you're you're writing about restaurants. You're inspired by restaurants. What's what's good?
1: Where did I go? I feel like now I'm gravitating towards spots that I can just roll up at the bar. Yeah, have a great glass of wine or a great cocktail, and um, everyone's doing. Small plates, yeah, uh, but they're not priced like small plates. No, nah, they're like thirty dollars, <laughs> right? like for like two bites. Um, it's fine. I get it.
0: No, I, I, I'm not clowning on like high priced food. It's it's you gotta you gotta pay to play these days.
1: I went to um Mar- Margot, yeah, um with a friend. Had a glass of wine. We had like two small plates. That was cool. I like all the touches in their restaurant. Yeah. Um, you know they have letterpress menu. Yeah. Everyone nice. has on. You know, these beautiful coats with their logo. I like the touches in there. That yeah. felt really good. Um, I also have been, like, revisiting some of the classics. Going to a lot of French spots. I'm working on a project with a chef friend, so I've been revisiting, like, Odeon. Mm-hmm. I actually went to Diner. Mm. Um, I haven't been there since yeah. pre-pandemic. Uh, the burger still is good. The burger is $25, but it's still Respect. the bomb.
0: Yeah, it's still bomb. It's a great burger.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, um... And, of course, I live in Bedford-Stuyvesant, so I have my neighborhood hangs, yeah, yeah. um that I tend to go to a lot.
0: Well, let's talk about Watermelon and Redbirds. I'd like to get a sense first, um, what is Juneteenth? I want to make sure our audience is very aware. It, we, we've passed it. This is not the before Juneteenth interview, yeah. but but it still is a, a national holiday, and, and let's, I'd like to hear from your what it is. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, my new cookbook, Watermelon and Redbirds, a cookbook for Juneteenth yeah. and Black Celebrations – June nineteenth, eighteen sixty-five is the day that more than um two hundred thousand black Texans found out that they were free. And the 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 bigger thing to that that is that it was more than two years after President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. And so um President Biden made it a nationally recognized holiday in twenty twenty one. Uh the state of Texas it had been a Texas state holiday since the early 80s, 1980 to mm-hmm. be exact. So, um, yeah, everyone is, like, on the Juneteenth train. I feel like it's exploded. And I just so happened to have had people in my life, like my former agent, and um, who said, you should do a Juneteenth book. And I'm like, uh, no. Uh, but then I came around to yeah. doing it, and— Actually, this book and this project was in ideation way before the summer of 2020. Yep, um, I, I that was a really a turning point uh, for the Juneteenth holiday and the word to be in the American lexicon forever. Um, but I was working on the project prior to that.
0: Let me ask you, backing up, we talk about the two year gap between the Emancipation and this moment, June 19th, mm-hmm. in Texas. What is that time gap? What does that signify? 'Cause I'm i I'm I think I wanna make sure we're getting yeah. that right. So
1: black people all over the American South um uh, found out at different moments yeah. um that that freedom was theirs. Um so a lot of plantation owners, you know, they didn't they weren't well, there were some enslaved people who could read, but they had to like deliver the news. Mm-hmm. But a lot of plantation owners withheld that information because they wanted to have laborers for their next cotton, um, right? Uh, you know, cotton growing season or for whatever, tobacco growing season. So, so all over the American South, different cities have emancipation days or jubilee days from Richmond to Charleston, from Athens, um, uh, different parts of the Carolinas you'll find that people say, no, our Juneteenth or our Mm -hmm. Freedom Day is January 2nd. So enslaved folks did not find out as soon as, you know, Abraham Lincoln dropped his pen uh yeah. they got the the word at various times but texas was literally um one of the last, the last. Yeah, and so it's, it out. feels
0: like it's like a true freedom day in that it was one of the la- the final days
1: it know? was one of the final days yeah. and texas you know people for so long um may juneteenth uh, super special yeah. you know um, it is a holiday that is rooted in Texas tradition. And I try to always, you know, say that when I talk about it. And even in the book, I make sure I yeah. root the holiday in, in Texas culture. But we know that, you know, during the great migrations in the 1920s and 1950s, that black Texans moved all over um, the U.S. Black people in the South um, moved to different parts mm-hmm. of the country for better opportunities and to um, escape in your face, Jim um, gent- yeah. Bro.
0: Yeah, I mean, High in the Hog, a documentary on Netflix. I've got to watch that just to get a little sense of the, the migration and, and some yeah. of that history. Um, let's talk about food. How does June 19th, Juneteenth, um, how, how is food celebrated on this holiday and how did you structure your cookbook yeah. to represent this?
1: Well, you know, what I like to tell people, Matt, is that this is the way that I celebrate Juneteenth. Yeah. Like, yes, it is the first cookbook by a major publisher dedicated to the Juneteenth holiday, but what I know from my research that there are families who have their own cookbooks or piles of recipes that they make um, every year for Juneteenth. So my, my goal was to really just kind of talk about the holiday and say what it is and to give permission to um, black creatives, mm-hmm. particularly black um, restaurateurs or cookbook authors, um, just give them permission to to write a cookbook the way they want to and that, you know, over the past 10, 15 years, we have so many black cookbooks that have um, entered the market that give the foundation of black food in America. Um, And we don't have to always do that. So this Juneteenth cookbook is Afrofuturistic in a sense. Respect that. It's
0: more of a zeitgeist. It's more of a moment. It's more of an interpretation versus... The historical significance. I respect the di- distinction you've made, and and in publishing, it's extremely creative to do it that way.
1: I I, I do. I want to be specific about two things. Now, I do make sure that there are a lot of historical facts we've throughout the book. I spent a lot of time making sure that I left breadcrumbs <laughs> around history and said people's names out loud. Yeah. Um, and But I also wanted to kind of, my book is laid out where I say the essentials of Juneteenth. So you have a chapter on the red drink. You have a chapter mm-hmm. on barbecue, a chapter on potato salad yeah. and other salads and um, desserts.
0: Respect that a potato salad chapter. Yeah. Nice.
1: I, yeah. And each chapter opens up with the essay. So yeah. I was very, very intentional about the structure of the book and making sure that it broke the mold a bit.
0: Yeah. Speaking of historical figures, um, is there a person in black foodways in American history who maybe isn't recognized as much as they should be? I know there's many, but just we'll have you on the pod, let's let's go over maybe a couple individuals, one individual.
1: Wow. That's a hard question.
0: I I'll link to Therese Nelson. Um Therese Nelson wrote several articles for taste and, and part of, of the, 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 the scheme and the note was to elevate, you know, folks in history. Yeah. I'd love to get your take.
1: Yeah, Cerise Nelson is a dear friend. I love her. She's awesome. Um, There are so many people that have toiled in kitchens, worked at sorority houses, cafeterias, who probably wanted to write a cookbook, you know, 50, 60 years ago. But it it was impossible. Um, But I think about how Chef Joe Randall Mm. was recently— Awarded the Cookbook Hall of Fame. Amazing! Um, I was there.
0: It was amazing. Acknowledgement.
1: To see that. Yeah, yeah, at the James Beard Awards, he, Uncle Joe, <laughs> he's a very, very nice person and supportive person. When my first book came out, he sent his daughter, who lived in Atlanta, to one of my book events and Facetime me. Oh. And that's the kind of person he is. Um, so it was very meaningful to see him being recognized because he is an inspiration to a lot of black chefs who are you know toying away at the Ritz Carlton or the Mm -hmm. W Hotel so it's good that he that he's gotten his shine there are so many chef Joe Randall's out there Mm -hmm. though you know that deserve to be on the main stage I think about Dorsal Miles she got her shine but yeah I can't. I can't zero in no, on one. It's but, so
0: hard. No, it's but just uh, naming a couple folks here on the show is is cool. And and I gotta Teresa and I we were talking about a couple stories and gotta get her back on taste. It's uh, those are great pieces. That yeah, she wrote. yeah.
1: The hot sauce one is is the bomb.
0: It really was the bomb. <laughs> that was a great piece. Okay, on this is taste. We ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check for you, Nicole. All right, you ready? I'm ready. What's the best way to dress a salad?
1: Ooh, definitely a oil uh, vinaigrette. Bottom of the bowl, bowl with your hands, mix.
0: Bottom of the bowl, hands. Yeah, hard agree. Your favorite cookbook? One cookbook.
1: Ooh, spoon bre- bread and strawberry wine by the Darden sisters.
0: The most underrated New York City restaurant.
1: Ooh. That's a hard one. What?
0: I know. Rating is hard. I'm giving you. (sighs) It's almost like a slept on gem. One that we don't write about because maybe it's six years old, which is a weird age.
1: I mean, I still feel like super cool when I go into Odeon.
0: Love that you mentioned that. You mentioned in your research that you're going to Odeon. Yeah. I feel. Yeah. Odeon's kind of back, though. I got to say. It's kind
1: of back. But when I feel there, I feel like I'm getting I'm a real New Yorker when I'm there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Totally.
1: I don't feel like a tourist, even though there probably are tours no. here.
0: No. It's like you think about like Jim Belushi back in the 70s doing like drugs in the bathroom. Exactly. And such a great history. Um, overrated ingredient.
1: Ooh. Man, I'm sick of y'all with the ma- ma- mayonnaise, okay? Wait, really? Yeah.
0: Mayonnaise? mayonnaise. Wow, that's a tough you one. Get for
1: me. Mayonnaise and aioli. Do we have to put that on everything?
0: <laughs> it's true. It does not belong in everything. And there are some bad mayonnaise. I'm. Not the biggest QP fan. I think QP is maybe overrated the Japanese mayonnaise, but I mean, Hellman's? No. Okay.
1: I don't Respect want it that. on my egg and cheese. People want to put it on everything. Oh, I'm yeah.
0: Good. No, 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 no. Respect that. All right. Um, Underrated ingredient.
1: Ooh. That's a hard one. Underrated ingredient. Cilantro. Yeah. Some people hate it. I, I feel like it just changes a whole Love
0: dish. It. Think about India. Think about Mexico. Think about, I mean, it could be many places. Love that. The best cheese.
1: Manchego, 100%.
0: Sweet. Favorite fast food?
1: Ha, French fries all day long.
0: Is there a brand, your brand of choice? Mm,
1: I'll take something that's thick, crinkly, super golden for sure.
0: Nice. Favorite gas station snack for a road
1: trip? Nuts, roasted nuts. Yeah.
0: Late night diner order?
1: Uh, chicken and waffles.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. To wrap this up, your favorite sandwich in the entire world?
1: Toasted bun, um, white cheddar cheese, fig jam. Whoa. And fancy country ham.
0: Ham on top of jam, fig. Oh, love that. Yeah, that's my favorite sandwich. That's a great sandwich. I would love that. I'm so hungry for that sandwich right now. Nicole Taylor, thank you for joining. This is Taste.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Jose lot. welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Like, Chicago is definitely—and you write about this in um, American Tacos? Yes. I, we've, I've talked to you a couple times um, for Taste about Chicago as a city that has an incredible Mexican-American population in food.
2: Yeah, there have been Mexicans there longer than there have been Mexicans in a lot of places, uh, and— th- that that has to do with the cattle industry. Vaqueros taught the cowboys, but they rode with them too, and they rode all the way up to Kansas City, where there's been a Mexican population there since before it was Kansas City. And yep. then they f- f- went f- further north. the The modern Mexican immigrant population is predominantly from Michoacan. So you get birria, carnitas, all these wonderful Central Mexican things. Uh, But it's expanding.
0: Yeah, it's expanding. You think of L.A. and also, of course, Texas, where you're based and you're the taco editor at Texas Monthly. You think of those as like the motherland of tacos, but honestly, Chicago, and then you're in New York right now researching a revised version of American Tacos and researching a possible new project. We'll get into that. What's New York like these days for tacos? What do you think? I'm excited.
2: Yeah. So as you know, I used to live here, and I lived in Sunset Park, which was Mexicanizing at the... the, Time and I would visit this west of this cart on the side of a bodega. It's not there anymore. Where this old lady would sell lamb barbacoa for $2. And I would give her the money, take the taco, and keep walking Mm. you can't find that in dallas or texas that doesn't exist there so new york has a great scene and it's had
0: one that's been overlooked and unfairly maligned well fairly maligned is an understatement i think everyone um, who, Uh, who knows food um will agree with you and, and, and kind of push back, but you hear these bullshit articles or these statements, you'll be at a party and they'll be like, there's no good Mexican food in New York, which is still happens today. And you're like, give me a break. It's it's a much maligned. But there's also, so now, you know, you've got your Sunset Park and you've got Corona in Queens, but then you've got like Greenpoint has like Taco Ramirez, Taqueria Ramirez, three Taquerias or taco restaurants, maybe two carts and one Taqueria. Made it onto Pete Wells' top 100 restaurants. It's pretty yeah. amazing.
2: More, m- more taco joints than pizza joints uh, on that list, and r- r- rightly so. Rightly so.
0: <laughs> I lo- and, and this is always your stance.
2: <laughs> well, let's just say the New York Slice... Has fallen in quality. Wow, uh, I'm I, I'm not a fan of it. There was a place in Queens that I used to go to; it was awesome. Hmm. I don't know if it's there anymore, hmm. but uh, the tacos have only gotten better here, and I, I'm excited. Yeah. To just eat my way through the city over four days. Yeah.
0: So we're hitting you at the, top, at the beginning of your, of your journey. You just came from the airport indoor studio. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And, and, and we'll catch up with you afterwards, either in a print article or, or have you back on the podcast to hear about it. But I just want to get a sense of what's on your spreadsheet. You famously, famously have spreadsheets. And I was in Chicago with you and you had a two-pager, two pages of notes. But what is on your spreadsheet for New York right now? A lot of places
2: in Queens, uh, B- B- mm-hmm. which opened up within the last few years, yeah. right? I've been in Texas f- for almost f- f- 15 years, so that's new to me. I'm excited. Uh, you-, you had mentioned Premieres I'm going to go there I'm going to go to Sobremasa uh I'm going to go to um for all things good I'm going to go to M- M- Morelos which has a place in Queens which is the original a place in the village and a few trucks in Brooklyn. Oh cool. Uh and jeez, so many so they are going to be fancy places there will be trucks. Uh there will be places that aren't on my spreadsheet that I'm going to see and I'm going to make a decision right there and then
0: i love that we were you were talking off mic about you were walking over here from from rock center and you saw two taco trucks you saw the taco truck in front of our office on broadway in 56 which had no line maybe not the (laughs) best sign and then you also observed a truck that was a puerto rican mexican truck that had a line so just jose like your general thought about midtown manhattan taco trucks what do you what's going on here it's unusual
2: because you've got your hot dog places. Yeah. You've got your meat on a stick, chicken and rice places. Mr. Softy suddenly has a fleet of trucks everywhere now. That's strange too. <laughs> but I don't expect taco trucks to be available where they film the Today Show, <laughs> you know, or where they f- film Late Night or whatever. It just seems out of place. Now, what that does tell me is that people love tacos. Tacos will only get more popular. There is no end in sight. And that ultimately...
0: The taco always wins. I love that line. I love that, Jose. It's, it's so true. And I want to go to Texas where you, you, the bulk of your journalism um, occurs. Uh, American Tacos obviously covers the country, and you're revising that book. But I want to focus on your work as the taco editor. Um, can you pick a favorite city for tacos in Texas? <sighs> I asked the, the bad question, and your eyes were like, oh, man. But I just had to do it. I just had to. So the way I would look at it is
2: you have c- cities th- th- that are diverse with their options, and then you have cities that specialize on in one or two things. So, for example, Dallas, where I live, is extremely diverse. Uh, San Antonio Not diverse It's Very much Tex-Mex But it's changing And it's changing For the better And I would have to say San Antonio Yeah Because That's the home of The Puffy taco Mm -hmm. That's the home of the breakfast taco Although Austin likes to
0: claim it, but it's still in valor, obviously. Yeah.
2: Austin is really good at packaging and (laughs) marketing. San Antonio is really good at just living. Yeah. It's just part of their DNA. Yeah. Uh, And maybe that's what does them in is that they take it for granted. Maybe all Texans do because it's just part of our life. When you're late to work, you you get breakfast tacos for the office. Yep. That's just how it
0: is. I love that line. I love that. I've been, and so we haven't talked about Houston and, like, the Alabama Ice House, the tacos outside <laughs> of there. I've been there on two separate visits. Houston's a great food city. Can I tell you that I don't like that place? I know. And I know that place is trash. I mean, because... No? (laughs) uh, Because honestly, dude, it's like the one that's on the lists and shit. Like, I feel like, you know, maybe it's a little overhyped. I love, like, hanging out there. It was a cool little spot.
2: So it's a drunk taco place. Yeah. And there's always room for (laughs) drunk tacos. (laughs) I will never argue that drunk tacos are, are simply bad there's room for everything and if you are drunk it's a great place to hang out
0: (laughs) but from the culinary side as the editor you're you're like nah i gotta be honest with you man last time i was there it tasted like plastic yeah bro i mean (laughs) i mean we were talking off mic about san loco in new york and to me that's the epitome of drunk tacos in new york city
2: yeah uh what you were telling me about that small chain is so enticing. As a journalist, uh, that that's now on my itinerary for my time
0: here. Guacoloco, man, that thing is that thing is a a, a taco. It, it really is a taco. I'm just going to leave it at that. But yeah, there's there's a real institution here um, with like drunk tacos and. Um, let me just flip it back to Houston, though. Tell me a little bit about what's happening in the city food-wise. Maybe not just for tacos. You you cover all sorts of—you're a journalist. You write about everything and not just food. But what's happening in that city?
2: Houston is
0: so diverse
2: that everything gets made into a taco. Uh, uh. All right, now, it's dominated by, I would say, two
0: groups— there's nymphas, nymphas. Oh my gosh, the fajitas. That's I love that place. That's been open
2: s- since 1973. It doesn't have to be good, but it's great. It's amazing. Uh, I love going there. And the other group would would be the H Town Restaurant Group, which owns. Hugo's, Xochitl, Caracol, all of these higher-end Mexican places that really put traditional Mexican food on the Houston map.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And then what happened was South Asians— Got a hold of the tortilla, and they made Indomex, or what I like to call Desimex. Uh, you've got a burgeoning Afghan cuisine coming up because of all of the refugees. Uh, of course, you have Cajun tacos. Mm-hmm.
0: I've had those. It's and...
2: Amazing. What else? I mean, it, it's just one after another. You're just like, holy crap. Where does it end? Yeah. And
0: th- the hope is it never does. Yeah, no, definitely. And and it's just this food city. And the, I've had the best pho in my life in that city. Oh, wow. It's just amazing. It's just an amazing city. And that includes Vietnam. Like, I feel like I had the best beef pho there. Um, let's talk about the Korean taco. I'm really curious because you've you've spent time researching this and writing about it. And I I have as well. Um what is you're the expert. Well I'm no no you're the <laughs> expert. I am a mere observer and and I know Roy Choi and and he he's certainly made a move uh early with with those but you've seen your fair share. Are, do you like Korean tacos? What makes a good Korean taco? I love them.
2: Uh I think that what Roy Choi did was genius. He took a private regional cuisine And brought it to the public, leveraging social media, which no one had ever done, right? So that was in 2008. Yeah. By 2010, there were restaurants across the country. So 13 years later, a lot of those places have closed, but there are new places and places continue To experiment, they work generally with a flour tortilla, which is a neutral vessel, right?
0: Uh, Wow. I'm just going to stop you there. A a neutral vessel is the flour tortilla. The ones they use, yes. Okay. Okay.
2: Because if you're on the border, you're going to get like... five different types of flour tortillas.
0: Right, right, right. I depending see. So on the, where you're from. The one that's used in LA is the neutral. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Yeah.
2: No, not at right. all. So we'll no. Continue. So no I, it's I, a good I, question. Yeah. It's a good point. Uh, and now, because the restaurant supply g- g- groups like Cisco and stuff, you're going to get one type of flour tortilla, right, that everyone's going to use because it's cheap and they can buy them in bulk. That is both a blessing and a curse because it could suck. Hmm, Yeah. But it could be great. But but what you'll definitely get is consistency, which can sink or make any business really but think about korean meats and think about mexican meats what you have are two great grilling cultures and so it's not much of a leap no Uh, well, marinated
0: have- meats that are then grilled—like it's, yes. it's almost like a two-part, right?
2: Yeah, 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 and and you can barbecue them if you want. Uh, but then you have cabbage, which you also have in Mexico. Yep, and the components are almost the same. It's the flavor profiles that change. Yep. So, what makes this so good and so appealing? It is simultaneously familiar and novel to the first timer, uh, to the connoisseur. It's another thing to eat, another food to think about. Yep. Uh, and... what are the cultural connections? Uh, like all American taco variations, it was born of two populations living side by side.
0: Yep, and L.A. Koreatown is a great example. Yeah. Like, like literally, in that in that city, there's you know, um, obviously filled with Korean restaurants, but there's a very quickly growing. Mexican population in Koreatown especially north of 6th street um that to me feels like maybe a little bit of a dividing line so
2: yeah so so it it just keeps growing it keeps meshing yeah yeah and that's when
0: innovation happens absolutely Yeah, on the note, I feel like, you know, we talk about bulgogi as the meat for Korean tacos, but I think jayuk bokum is better. That's the pork. That's uh, a sweeter pork, um, marinated pork, and I think comparing it to pastor, I I feel like those are the two connections there.
2: Yeah, Uh, and when you think of Mexican tacos, for better or for worse, you're going to think of beef and Pork. And those are the things that you think about when you think about Korean barbecue. Yep. So it's perfect. I prefer pork. Yeah. Uh, beef can go wrong in so many ways. Pork is a little bit more forgiving. Uh, yeah, but pork is a way to go...
0: You are right. <laughs> yeah, I love I love it. Um, let's talk about L.A. a little bit. Uh, and in your book, you write extensively about Los Angeles. Um, and there's a lot of ink spilled about Los Angeles tacos. And, and I love L.A. Taco, what they're doing there, that publication, yeah. indie publication. Um, if we're visiting L.A., how do we think about L.A. in terms of a taco city? Is there a geog- geographical dividing line? I have potentially one in my like a thesis, but I'd like to get your take.
2: Yeah, uh, I think a lot of people will like to say that West Los Angeles, Santa Monica, uh, for example, it is a taco desert. But Ali Tacos shown us that is not true. Definitely. So, well, like New York, you have to look for it. You have to work for it. You're going to find them wherever they want to be. You just have to be there too.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, and Poetic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and is there a geography? I think there used to be. With East L.A., for example, uh, Compton's really curious t- to me because it's predominantly m- Mexican American now. So you have the- this mixture of t- traditional tacos with African American tacos where they take soul food, comfort food, and put them in a tortilla. And you got mac and cheese and you know, yeah, jerk chicken in a tortilla <laughs> s- sold from a driveway.
0: Yeah, it's That's amazing. Gr- I've, yeah. I've I've gone on crawls with Garrett Snyder and Matt Kang and. Um and Dylan Ho, who's written for Taste uh, quite a bit about the Mexican scene in L.A. And the South Bay, like Compton um, and South Central Los Angeles in general, uh, the, the shift to Mexican-American population is, is dramatic. And on a Friday night, you just walk—you drive down Crenshaw, and it's like v- lots of carts and lots of tables and tents and taqueros. T- oh. The taqueros are out. It's really exciting. I love it down there. So it's really interesting to me that Southern California,
2: particularly Los Angeles, has given us wonderful regional tacos. Like Jewish tacos which came out of Los Angeles in the 40s uh when Jewish populations we are living next to Mexican populations. Uh, But the shift occurred about 20 some odd years ago. And while I love to go to Los Angeles to eat tacos, there's so many other places. I love that.
0: I love that statement. <laughs> you know. Tell me more. Tell me more. Where are we going?
2: Memphis, man. Yo. Gotta go Memphis. So they lost a huge white population, and it was filled in by Latin Americans who were working the agriculture there. And it's something like 60%. Mexican. And the tacos there are insane. Such an endorsement. There is a place. It's newer. uh, Where the husband is from Memphis and the wife is from Oaxaca. And they do surmex. So let's say albondigas. Chipotle stewed. Mm-hmm. Meatballs with collard greens, buttermilk fried, chicken, with queso. All these wonderful, very Southern, very Mexican things that work. Because once again, you have this cultural bridge. Well, What are the two greatest corn cultures on the planet? That would be the that would be Mexican culture and Southern culture. And so, so they came together,
0: yeah, and they gave us a great food. This hybridized cuisine that is only found in America in many ways. You can't you can't find that replicated anywhere. Well, I would say it's.
2: The basis of all cuisine, yes, uh generally, but specifically but when you're talking about things that are comforting or or foods that have become uh, foundational to American cuisine, yes. So for example, we're using eggs, hot dogs, sliced hot dogs, with yeah. scrambled eggs. It was a poverty food. And now they are beloved. It is a great breakfast taco.
0: Love that. Let's talk about the 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 revised version of American tacos. What are you what are you looking to update when you're doing this research?
2: So I'm going to remove a few places, add... New places, update narratives for nice. other places. I'm gonna add chapters. I have to add
0: media, Yeah. Unfortunately. Why do you say unfortunately? <laughs> wow. Cause I feel like that's definitely like this meme, um, meme food and we we love it, but why do you say unfortunately? Because it is a meme food and everyone
2: wants to do it because it sells. But that doesn't mean it's good.
0: So being historically a dipped taco, dipped in consomme? That's what we know it as now. But
2: right. originally it was a soup.
0: Right. See, that's right. <laughs> I'm so confused by it. that trend because when I, I would go to a place near the Staples Center that was known for El Perrion, I think it's called, near, known for birria, and it was a soup. And then all of a sudden it was a taco. I'm like, I don't know what's going on.
2: Yeah. And it was probably filled with goat, right? Oh, of course. Always goat. Yeah. Yeah. Cabrito. Yeah. Well, Americans love beef, as do northern Mexicans. Yeah. It's cattle country. And so the natural thing was to sub the meat. Sub the meat. Beef took off, uh, and now everyone's doing it. It's beautiful to watch on Instagram <laughs> all of those little videos, all those reels where people dunk their tacos, like you said. You know, it's perfect, it's <laughs> made for it, uh, but that doesn't mean it's good, yeah. Uh, so capturing the story of that across the country is important to me, and Another chapter is going to be the taco in the COVID and post-COVID era. Mm -hmm. Because tacos and Mexican food fared pretty well. Mm -hmm. Again, the taco always wins. It's not that places didn't close. It's that... What you have are small, independently-owned, family-run restaurants that can adapt quickly, much faster than a large restaurant uh, that requires a lot of money versus a truck.
0: Yeah. I want to close by just asking you about your future book projects because you you teased in the elevator when we were chit-chatting in my office— I don't know if you want to go on mic with this, but what can you say? You have a couple ideas that are stewing like a fine consomme that you dip a taco into. What are you thinking for your next couple projects, broadly speaking? So if you
2: think about mm, my current book, American Tacos, it's a m- map of the country's mexicanization. And it's broken up by taco styles. But how do you find great examples of those styles? What do you look for? What do they have in common? Uh, How do you read a taco? Uh, And then... And There's been a lot of talk about old-school American Mexican food, and the d- debate is growing. It's growing furiously. Pe- mm-hmm. People are yelling at each other, and um, I think it's worth looking into.
0: Uh, I will be that vague. Yeah. No, you, you've been properly vague, but also you're just, the carrot is out. I love this. It's so exciting. Thank you so much, Jose. I really appreciate you joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.